I believe this podcast with Rob Liebrich is going to touch the hearts of many of the listeners, not only who work in long-term care, but anyone who's ever been affected by dementia and Alzheimer's. Many of us have. Rob created such a beautiful program, a very simple program that's a free program. Everything is online, downloadable, called Stronger Memory. His story about why he did it for his mom and what he's been able to achieve for his mom and what he's rolling out in the rest of the country is very, very inspiring. My first conversation with him, I teared up. I held it together in this podcast. It is really beautiful. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rob as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy-Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. Today, I'm joined by Rob Liebrich, CEO and President Goodwin House and creator of the Stronger Memory Program, which he began after witnessing his mother's struggles with mild cognitive impairment. His story is a classic one of a man working tirelessly for his mom which is both inspiring and heartwarming. And I'm glad he's in long-term care and I'm glad he's here to join us today on LTC Heroes. Rob, welcome to the program. Peter, thanks for having me. Rob, I'd like to get to know you a little bit personally before we get into our industry. So I'll start off with some icebreaker questions. Do you have any uncommon hobbies that you love, Rob? Any uncommon hobbies? I've been going down to the Washington Mall to play Ultimate Frisbee for, gosh, maybe 25 years. So that's an uncommon hobby. I'm not very good at it, but I like going down and playing. That is a good one. And then I'd say the other uncommon note about me is I love traveling in general, but specifically, I'm trying to visit all the state capitals in the country, in the United States. And so far, I think I have just a handful left. So we've covered about 40, 45 uh, of those capitals so far. Well, I'm going to pause there for a moment. I don't have this scripted in the interview. What got you into state capitals and when did you start? So I love people. That's something that's important about me. And I was working my first job formally out of school was working with Bell Atlantic, who's now Verizon. And I found myself in a lot of state capitals working with a lot of wonderful people. And so I said, well, this is really fun. You get to know a state really well when you get to spend time in their capital and see all the different parts that made the capital of the capital. And, and so I just decided uh, from that point on to, to go seek out other capitals. And I had visited a few as a, as a kid growing up with my family, but just that love of people and trying to understand people uh, has driven it. Thanks for sharing that. Next question I have for you outside of the industry is, what's the most recent book that you've read unrelated to long-term care? The honest truth is I've been reading, I, I don't read a lot of books. And so I listen to a ton of books. I tried to, I put it down a couple of years ago, Peter, to read a book every two weeks. And at the end of the year, I had read three. And so I was like, oh, this really stinks. I shifted and my daughter helped me with this idea. Just, well, why don't you go borrow books from the library and listen to them on your phone? So I've been doing a ton of that. And so now I've, I've probably picked up to uh, listening to 26, 30 books a year, no problem at all. And my last book, I'll just say, needing to take a break mentally because of the work that I do consistently, I've been reading some James Patterson and Dr. Cross books lately. Thank you for sharing that. In terms of moving into long-term care, Rob, if you could change 
one thing, anything in long-term care with the snap of your fingers, what would it be? If I could change one thing, I think that's a, that's a great question, Peter. And I would think about that for a little bit. I, I think the one thing that I love to be able to come around is just applying consistently respect and dignity uh, to all that utilize services within long-term care. I think we have got a long way to go there. I, I think there's great intention and there's wonderful people working on it. But for resource constraints and all kinds of other reasons, we're just not there yet. And I think we need to get more creative as a country, as a world. If I'm understanding right, about 90, 95% of all the countries in the world are aging between now and 2100. Uh, so every one of us needs to figure out how to, how to do that with respect and dignity at the forefront, not at the back tail of the equation. Appreciate that. Now, I believe by your resume, you've been in long-term care almost two decades. So the next question has to do with what's the biggest change that you've seen in long-term care industry since you joined us? It's all demographics driven, Peter. When I first enrolled in school, so I enrolled in a program of master's business administration with Johns Hopkins. And when I came into that program back in 20, 2002, the professor, Tony Mullen, uh, who passed away, but a great guy, had said, if you're here because of the demographics, you're too early. We're 15 years away from, from really having a population boom around the older adults. And I think the things that's changed is the thing that we're all struggling with. We've seen the growth of older adults, and, and certainly as I'm tracking it, you know, we're going to see the 75-plus category grow double between 2020 and 2040. Uh, that's a significant shift. And then at the same time, we have the lowest birth rates in our country. And I think that's the big change that I've seen. 20 years ago, the struggle for staff certainly wasn't where it is today and at all levels. And I think we're only going to see that grow in terms of a challenge. So we've got a lot to come around and a lot of creativity to, to put forward to, to think through that. And the last question I have before we get into your, your background and also the Stronger Memory Program is, and it's kind of in honor of this program, I'm going to ask you who's been an important mentor for you in long-term care. Who would you name if you had to say one person, and they don't actually have to be in long-term care, but they've affected the way that you approach care? Who's your LTC hero, Rob? I referenced Tony Mullen early on for me in my Hopkins days and transitioning and getting introduced to folks at Ericsson and Brightview and Aegis Living, all providers that I've worked with now in my career. Uh, so I, I think I would pay attention to, to Tony's influence on me, his wisdom that he passed along, the way that he went about trying to teach us students at the time, especially for me coming in from a different field. Uh, I would say Tony had a, had a tremendous amount of impact on me. Uh, and then I, and then subsequently, I would add my family. You know, a lot of what all of us do is because of what we experience ind individually because of our family. So my mom, my dad, my grandparents, my uncle, aunts, they've all had a pretty significant influence on me uh, so far. And looking back at your, your first professional job, it looks like you started off in telecommunications. And it sounds like you mentioned that at the beginning. How did you make the decision to move from innovation, business, telecommunications, and decide to go into senior living? It's a good question. It's not a normal path. <laughs> uh, so I, I graduated from Georgetown with a master or with a degrees in uh, international business and marketing. Love the people side. I had been working in telecommunications while in school and continued on for almost 10 years. And towards the end of that time in service in the telecommunications field, I decided to take a trip around the world 
with a lady who's now my wife, which is great. Uh, so we, we spent six months traveling, uh, saw a lot around the cultures and, and different things within the world. But when we came back from that, I grew up in Oregon and we went back to Oregon and where my grandmother, my dad's mom, was set to move into a community. And uh, the day before that move took place, I sat bedside with her as she was passing away. And that's what propelled me into this field, Peter. That moment really was formative and challenging me. You know, I had a good degree, a good education. I'd been working in telecom on both the marketing and operations side. When I experienced what I'd experienced with my grandmother, I felt like uh, she was excited about the move, but there was a lot of anxiety and fear also around that move. And I feel like it might've hastened her passing away sooner than, than uh, we had hoped. And so I, since that moment, I really tried to figure out how to dedicate myself to this, this space. And initially it was hard uh, to get in uh, because I you know, painted as a telecom person. I had a lot of transferable skills, I, I felt, but I could not find a door that would open wide enough for me to walk through. And so only by enrolling in an educational program focused on senior care and housing was I able to very quickly then procure an opportunity uh, to work and serve in this field. That makes sense about kind of the barrier to entry. Are there any skills that you brought over from telecom that you think have particularly served you had you not had that experience? It would be hard for you to approach certain ways or have certain success in certain areas? Well, I, I think from a telecom perspective, just the consistency of service is, is always expected, right? Mm. I mean, you always have to have the up. And if you're not always consistently providing it, you're, you're going to be in trouble. And I think that that certainly has served me well to think about that. You know, people's expectations never go away. They're always persistent. And so you have to be ready to meet those expectations on a regular basis. I think the other side, Peter, is that for the telecom work that I did, I worked with a lot of diverse populations in a lot of diff different markets. I served in a, an organization that served the international community. And so I learned a lot about not just being, my view being narrow, but broadening, broadening it. And between that exposure to international markets and traveling candidly for six months, I really figured out in that six month trip that how people perceive the end of life really directs a lot of how they live life. And I think I've carried that with me, recognizing that there's a lot of different ways that people perceive the end of life and, and what their religious beliefs are, et cetera. And so I'm trying to be really respectful and approachable in that regard, as I think served me really well from my telecom and traveling days. That's a unique connection and profound insight. Thank you for sharing that. Getting into stronger, stronger memory, can you tell me a little bit about its origins? And I'm going to throw a second question at you, and you can tackle it any way you want in whatever order. But were you looking for something? I know that there's a mother element to this that triggered it, but were you already on the path trying to find something for stronger memory? And I'll, I'll let you introduce how it was created. No, uh, I wasn't. I was in service uh, starting effectively in 2002 when I started to work in the field of senior living. Uh, and serving older adults. I started off in the marketing and sales side, and I was helping opening up new communities and certainly looking for differentiators to, to do that effectively. Uh, but I wasn't looking specifically for what has now been generated with stronger memory. That came nine years later when in 2011, my mom, who was 68 at the time, was starting to repeat herself, was starting to forget things, and she was getting lost in familiar areas, which is really scary. And 
here's a person who is, you know, well-educated. She's exercising all the time. She eats well. She has all the regimens that you'd want. She's not a smoker. Uh, she doesn't drink excessively. Uh, she didn't have a thyroid issue. She, you know, all these things that you want to roll out in case they are the factor. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no, no factors. It was just that she was having some cognitive challenges. And so we did some testing and certainly it came back that she was experiencing what would be defined as mild cognitive impairment. And that doesn't necessarily mean the end of things. Five years after you have a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, about 38% of folks develop a full onset of dementia, some form of dementia. So this became starting to become really personal. You know, there's about 10 million people in our country alone, Peter, that have mild cognitive impairment, it's estimated. So she was one of those many. My challenge was, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, you know, nine years in to serving older adults, I had no tools for her. I had nothing to give her. Like I would have been able to say to her, hey, you need to start moving and exercising. But she was already doing that. She was already getting her heart pumping, which is probably the most important thing that all of us can do. I think the studies have come in uh, much more conclusively about that. She wasn't smoking already, so there's nothing to quit. You know, she was sleeping pretty well. So that's a good factor, uh, allowing the hippocampus and other parts of the brain to, to get the rest and the waste to go out at night, those type of things. So I was really stuck. And uh, being stuck sucks when you are uh, trying to do something for someone that you love. And I've always approached serving in this field with the idea that everyone that I blessed to be touched by and able to impact, I have to see them as family. You know, I have to see them as my favorite family member. So you know, in a way, I should have been thinking about this sooner, but only once my mom really presented the issues did I, did I shift into full gear of trying to figure something out. And what were your first steps? Like, can you take me back to the day when you noticed that she was starting to get a little bit lost? Do you remember the day when you're like, oh, I need to do something? Was it the day that the test came back? And then what did you do? Did you start Googling? Did you start calling scientists? I don't know what you do to even approach this because I wouldn't know. And it's 2021 right now. And I wouldn't know today had I not met you. I appreciate that, Peter. Uh, you're pretty industrious, though. I, I have a feeling you'd, you'd find some pathways eventually. So I would say from my experience in 2011, I really didn't have any answers. Again, nine years into service, I was working with some of the most uh, incredible organizations within our field and nothing. I, I didn't have an answer from my mom because there are no known cures for dementia. There's no pathway there. And so at the time when we were working through this and getting testing and my, it was really my dad, he was the focal point for me. I was listening to him. I was understanding where he was coming from, what he was seeing. I was not living in Oregon. I wasn't right by them. So we were in the Washington DC area at the time when this happened. And so for me, I couldn't see anything in terms of a solution. It was only by happenstance that I came upon the right answer. And it was almost a year later. And so up until that point, it was, you know, manage the best we could, roll out as much as we could, and then hold your breath, I guess. And there was no real great answer. And you stumbled upon a Japanese method, correct me if I'm wrong. How did you find that? I was working for a not-for-profit at the time. I'd moved from the D.C. area to Seattle, and I went to the 2012 Leading Age Conference. And Leading Age is a, a collection of not-for-profit providers for older adults or for senior living. And I went uh, to the conference, I think it was in Denver, 
in essence, actually wandering around, Peter. I, so I, I had clarity of some things I wanted to step into, but I didn't have a full schedule of what I wanted to do. And I saw this thing that was a report out from a group out of Japan about a program that they had brought to the United States, translated in. And so it really was compelling for me. And I thought, okay, what can I do to learn more about this? I wonder if, if what they're talking about is something that I can pick up and share with my mom, because it was the first time I had heard, it was so simple. The concept was so simple that I thought, I have to be able to come around this. I, there's gotta be a way to, to sort of test this out. All the work that that group talked about was with nursing uh, homes and people, in, in certainly in long-term care settings, where they had introduced some basic concepts with some socialization elements, and by doing that and having consistency of residents involved in the program four or five times a week, they were seeing people on their cognitive decline sort of plateau and in a number of cases improve on their uh, cognitive testing that they were doing. And I said, okay, that sounds perfect. Like I need something that will arrest my mom's symptoms and, uh, and hopefully improve it. I couldn't get access to that program. I've actually never seen the program in this practice. But I understood it conceptually and logically. And I said, okay, well, I bet I can replicate this in some form or fashion. And so the, the essence of what we've tried to do, certainly over the last number of years, is replicate that program. It was amazing what happened just within the first month. And you still haven't seen their program to see if you guys have gone, ended up with the same result or if there's some overlap but gone different, different routes? No, no, it's, an, it's, a, it's based in a nursing home. And it's rolled out in a number of places, but I haven't seen the program. And what I've seen are just this report out that happened in 2012. I wasn't alone, by the way. I was in the audience with a number of other folks. And fast forwarding nine years now, I'm finding people that are like, oh, yeah, I was in that room with you. And I went and did the same thing, you know, created a, plan, a program for our residents in our community to come around and assimilate and sort of utilize the tools uh, that we all uh, sort of took away. Were you, I don't want to say suspicious did you have doubts that it would work and you just started to spend like two hours a week on working on it? Or were you like, this is my only hope. I'm 50-50. This is going to work. And you said, clear my schedule on Tuesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons and find me assistant and we're going to dive into this. Well, how did you go about tackling it? Probably more simplistic than that and, and candidly a little bit selfish. I just went to my mom. I, I left that conference. I went to my mom and I said, hey... I have something for you. It might work, it might not, but let's give it a try. And so there's no downside to, to the efforts uh, that we've been embarked upon. And the efforts include three very simple things. One is reading out loud. Doesn't sound like there's any downside to that. So it seems like a, a safe bet. Uh, one is handwriting. Okay, no problem. Again, there's no side effects to, to doing that unless you write maybe for too long, a writer's cramp. The third was doing simple math quickly. And again, uh, all three of these things in combination and theory were engaging uh, uh, this prefrontal cortex of the brain, this, this working memory. And if you did it 20 minutes a day, then you might be able to see some results over time. That was the, the hope. And so I, I went back to my mom and said, you can write already. You have a journal. Let's keep journaling. Uh, start journaling more intentionally. And you can read out loud. You'll need an audience because, uh, Peter, if you ever try this, trying to read out loud to yourself, at least for me, about three paragraphs in, you don't know it, but you're back to silent reading. So you need an audience. You know, find an audience, find a way to read out loud. Uh, and then math. Math was really the hard part 
but we enrolled my mom in a simple curriculum and that was available for first and second graders. And it was, you know, she had to go and check in twice a week, at least once a week and get math sheets and work very simple math, non-anxiety producing math was the goal. It was amazing within a month of doing that, within a month of introducing these three simple things and having her do that 20 to 30 minutes a day, her forgetfulness was no longer apparent. Her repeating of sentences was no longer, and certainly she wasn't getting lost in, in common areas. I mean, and all within a month. That's amazing. And I think I remember the first time you and I chatted when you started to share this. And I remember when I watched your interview with your mother, and we'll put these in the, in the show notes as well. I remember having a visceral emotional reaction to kind of what you all discovered. Were the three tests, the three exercises that you implemented, things that you learned from the seminar or were there two and you added a third? No, it was from the seminar. The seminar talked about things more basically because it was for nursing, skilled nursing residents with sort of nth stage or end stage uh, dementia, you know, much mm-hmm. further progressed. My mom wasn't there, right? She, mm-hmm. she was upstream. And so, you know, they were probably doing numeracy, just like, you know, if, could you recognize a number? Could you read big print? You know, is that possible type of thing? Just their program, as I could understand it, was much more uh, simplified for numeracy than it was for math. But we felt like, this could be a good path for her. How soon after you saw results with your mom, did this start to become one, a program where ended up being the infancy of stronger memory? And how soon did you bring in science and start to look behind the facts of what you visually saw and put some tangible research into it? Again, I'm I'm a fairly simplistic person in this regard and, and probably didn't handle things exactly right. We, I was really focused on my mom, Peter. As I said, I referenced, it was, I was really selfish uh, in the moment and wanted to come around her. And I would say we did that really, really well. And then that was in 2012. And so I had this knowledge that it was working. I actually was trying to, trying to figure out a way to get the curriculum from the group that, that had seen it in, in the leading age conference. Couldn't get it. Uh, couldn't get them to, to share it. And I thought to myself, and I know this happens in our country. But I thought to myself, wow, you might have a solution to really pushing off the need for care, the emotional strain, all those parts, but I can't access it. I really want to access it. And it wasn't available. And so I said, okay, that's fine. What else can I do? And I I left it. I left it with my mom just saying, okay, look, we've got you and you're on a good path. And it was only uh, two years later, I was opening up an assisted living memory care community. And my friend and colleague, Judy Wadsworth, fantastic lady, she said to me, she had met my mom. She said, your story with your mom is fantastic. But we were at a community with 104 residents at HS Living in, in Seattle, HS on Madison. She said, what are you going to do for our residents? Like, what are you going to do to help them out? Uh, because if this is working for them, or working for your mom, it should be able to work for our residents. And so then, then the challenge began, right? Then it was try to figure out a curriculum, try to figure out some science behind it, try to figure out how to put it all together. And I was really fortunate. I talked with Dwayne Clark, who's the founder of Aegis, and he's very, very innovative. And I shared with him my my personal experience and where we were going. And he said, look, if you want to run that kind of program, create that kind of curriculum out of Aegis on Madison, go for it. And so he's very supportive in that regard. And I said, okay, I had to figure out how to fit into my budget, all those things. But I ended up hiring a young lady by the name of Helen Halpern, 
and she was just finishing up her doctorate, becoming an occupational therapist. And she had also done teaching before. And I thought, aha, perfect combination. I need a teacher because it's going to be curriculum based. And I need an occupational therapist mind because I want it to be successful that it has good outcomes, right? They're outcome focused. And we spent a year working on creating a curriculum uh, at that time and figuring out if you're going to have math, which way should math problems go? How hard should they be? All these little details, the fonts, all, all these little details that become important. And we rolled out a program at Aegis on Madison and enrolled about 20 residents into the program. And for those that were consistently doing the work, wow, we saw the same thing for, that my mom had experienced, right? Uh, I had residents that had forgotten the names of their primary caregivers. One gentleman that really sticks in my mind, his sister was his beloved caregiver. And she, you know, just so excellent, but he could not remember her name. Just a few weeks into doing this kind of work, consistently, the recall came back and he was able to recall who she was. And so you can imagine that emotional uh, tether there. Uh, we had residents at Aegis on Madison who were eating better, sleeping better, uh, all these things that you wouldn't anticipate because of this work, but that was the change that was occurring in their life. And so really excited to created that initial package there and help those residents within Seattle. Uh, that was the start of it. I'm interested in on the personal side of things, when you start to see this take off and you start to see interest from, from other people and then you have colleagues in the industry like Judy pushing you saying, this is going to get big and you have to carry this cross. What was going on in your mind? Were you thinking like, whoa, this could be life-changing for many more people? Did you think, oh, this is overwhelming? What if it fails and it doesn't work out? What were you feeling at home? What were you telling to your wife? What were you saying to your friends? No, that's a good question. I think it goes back to why I came into this field in the first place with that sense of taking fear and anxiety out of the equation and ultimately trying to replace it with hope and purpose. I felt really good about creating something that had some element of hope. I don't want to oversell this, right? There's no cure for the dementias out there, but if we could delay symptoms as long as we possibly can, I think we win. I think there's a, a winning philosophy there, because then maybe something else will happen in life and you won't have to face the emotional and physical detriments of brain cognitive loss. And so I felt really compelled to do something with Judy's prompting. And I felt great about what we had created. I also felt just as I had the very first time I heard about this kind of concept, I wanted it for everybody. I wanted it to be available for everyone. And working for, for Aegis, which is a great organization, a lot of flexibility, but I, I charged for the service, right? I had to charge for the program to my residents. So a select few could utilize. But what we also realized in that moment was, could you create an ecosystem in your community? Could you create so many different ways to read out loud, do basic math? And so what ended up happening, although we only had 20 residents paying for the service, every day we created ways for people to engage in simple math. Every day we created ways for people to do handwriting. Every day, we created ways for people to read out loud. And we did that through, you know, if you had a, a, a drama club that was reading scripts, perfect, because we're reading out loud to each other. You wanted to do a Bible study, great, read out loud to each other. You wanted to write letters because you wanted to have this sense of purpose in your day, not just be serviced in a community setting. And now you could write letters to veterans and thank them for their service. You could write letters to other people around the world, pen pal programs. Like you can create a lot of different ways we had a daily sheet that we put simple math 
problems on and encourage people to work through uh, those math problems. We put a personal question on the back, sort of a life. Tell us about a trip you took when you were a kid. What was the most memorable, right? And all of a sudden we realized we were starting to collect this, this rich history with people. And we were doing it in a way that was engaging the prefrontal cortex of the brain and helping people hopefully cognitively be better than they would have been without this kind of ecosystem around them. So that was the encouragement. That was sort of the compelling, like, could you create a full on space where this can occur? And I think that's still the right answer. I'm, I'm really jazzed and excited. I'm now getting a chance to replicate that good work that was done at Goodwin House. And it's been, a, you know, it's been seven years uh, since that time. But that was what was compelling to me at the time. Could you try to help the folks who could pay for it, but create a a way for everyone in a community to benefit from it? This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care. Experience Care is a provider of world-class EHRs that alleviate the pain of disorganization in your facility. Its dashboard is designed to minimize confusion and maximize productivity. Experience Care is designed for CEOs that care about their CNAs and their residents alike. Visit experience.care to learn more about the best EHR in the market. I'm a little bit confused by when you say pay for it because all of your curriculum's for free online, right? Yeah, so when I was at Aegis on Madison, I didn't have a curriculum posted for free online. It was a specific curriculum that if you wanted to participate in it, you had to pay to, to have, because you needed someone to facilitate the program uh, and I needed to pay for that service. And mm-hmm. so uh, it was not free back when we started it in Seattle. But uh, today yeah. anybody could pick it up and do it with their own staff and it's free of charge. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you fast forward seven years, actually fast forward six years and you come into 2020, we were in January of 2020 before this pandemic took hold. I'd spent about two years creating the curriculum in the background, a different curriculum, just totally from scratch, working on math sheets, working on writing prompts. And, um, and so in, in January, I, I actually came to our Linda Latiana, who's our chief operating officer, who's really smart, knows how to roll out programs. But what I was looking for her was to tell me what's not going to work here. You know, is this something that we should even try? And she's like, no, let's try it. Let's try it out. Let's do a pilot. We'll do a pilot. We have two communities at Goodwin House that we serve directly and a third that we support in McLean. But one's in Alexandria, Virginia. One is in Falls Church or Fairfax, Virginia. Between those two communities, we have about 950 residents. And we secured about 25 residents between the two houses. And we had them starting to do the curriculum that I had worked on for, for the last two years and finally was able to put into a package. And we named it Stronger Memory. And in January, they started it. We did a pre-testing for those folks. And then we did post-testing just from January to April. And in March of 2020, we know that the pandemic started started to take hold, took all the energy. We were meeting in person with those two groups. Most of the the folks that we had participating would come with a spouse because we were really trying to angle it so that someone could facilitate with them Mm -hmm. uh, and encourage them to do the work. And we were seeing the same things that I'd seen with my mom, the same things that I'd seen with the residents back in Seattle. Uh, we were seeing with our own residents and uh, at Goodwin House. And I said, oh, this is great. This is really encouraging. And in June of 2020, we posted that curriculum for anyone and everyone to use. And our commitment, because we're a faith-based not-for-profit, has been and will be through our foundation, assuming that we you know, can continue to get donations to, the, to our Goodwin House Foundation, we'll keep it complimentary and free for everyone to use. And we think it's the right way to go because there's so many people that need 
and would benefit from this type of program. So I can share, I haven't shared this with you. Generally on the podcast, I try to be careful. I'm happy to have providers on if it's affordable and it's going to have something innovative that's going to help the entire industry. And I can remember thinking when I first kind of talked with you, I'm like, oh, this sounds so expensive. The results are amazing. And then I remember going online and downloading your entire manual and your entire program for 238 pages in a free PDF and thinking, whoa, this is really, really altruistic and really beautiful. Do you have any idea how many residents, people you are reaching around the U.S. outside of the programs that you are directly in control of or rolling out inside of Goodwin House? So, Peter, again, we didn't start this out with a, a very sophisticated approach to tracking. It was more about getting it out and just having people download it. So we just recently uh, started tracking and asking for people to put in their email address so we, we know if you download it. I mean, before then, it was a free-for-all. And so uh, I know you talked with one of our our newer uh, members that just joined our team, Vivian Cody, and she was working at a, another community in our market area. She downloaded the material, started sharing it with her residents, saw, saw some um, good results with some of her folks. So to answer your question, I don't know how many people uh, ultimately have uh, started this up. What I would say is we want to impact as many people as possible. I've told my team that it, it, between now and 2023, at least like to impact 100,000 lives. So that's 1% of those with mild cognitive impairment in our country. I'd love to be able to, to check that box quickly. So if we're able to do that, you know, in the next few months, great. And so I think I was just on a call right before this. It was with a group of folks across the country. They're, they're part of the Village to Village Network. And it's a, a group. They have about 350 chapters uh, representing about 50,000 individuals. And it started in Beacon Hill, Boston area. And the idea was to, is to have services uh, rendered in your community so you don't have to move to a, a senior living community. And I think it's great. And we started asking them or talking with them and said, you know, show them what we had. Said, we'd love to work with you to roll this out across the country. But we're small. We're doing this for free. And so we have uh, limited staff to, to help facilitate. But we want to do this with you. And they were very excited. I went through the program with them. And we started off with 5% of their chapter being able to work with us. And sorry, it's not 5%, it's 17 chapters out of that 350. And so we were able to uh, work with those. I just came off a call with that group. And so we we're, know we're, we're impacting nationally now, sort of coast to coast in both ways, and the conversation around this. I, one of the ladies said, I live in a small town. People are so excited about this. that The town wants to get involved, wants to get sponsoring uh, the program and, mm -hmm. uh, and roll it out. And I say, perfect, uh, because... The sooner we can get this type of material in the hands of people, and the sooner we can get people consistently using it, the sooner I think we can delay the need for care. And as I mentioned to you, the biggest changes that I've seen is, for your question is around the demographics. A lot more seniors, fewer hands to service those seniors. Uh, the best protection we can give those seniors is to prevent the need for care. Mm. And I really believe that this is one of those tools. In addition to exercise or movement, which is really critical to be able to, to help with that. I would love to hear from those listeners who downloaded the Stronger Memory manual before you asked them to give their email, uh, reach out and say how long they've been implementing it. If they started during COVID, what are the challenges? I know that there are a lot of people that want to reach out to it. Rob, you will want to reach out to you and, and find Stronger Memory and those who have, I would love to hear how it's worked for them. Rob, 
I can tell by you're not going to like this comment because you're probably too humble and too modest, but you have to be one of the leading experts in innovation related to memory care and long-term industry. And you might not be the scientist, but in terms of the innovation, I think that you have to be one of the leading experts. What's still missing in long-term memory care in 2021? Thanks for that title and tag. I don't think I, I earned that yet. I'm absolutely passionate son who wanted to help his mom. And I'm absolutely passionate in serving my residents and, and the older adults in this country and the world. So that side, I, I might be able to take a title. You know, what's missing is just the accessibility to programs for all we have. And I serve a Goodwin House, which is, again, a faith-based not-for-profit. And we, we have a, a model still today that allows for care to be provided for those that have resource. And for those that don't have a lot of resource, there's, there's a number of programs, but there's a ton of folks in the middle that don't have ability to, to access quality care or resources or tools. So I think that's it. You know, I think when we get creative and we as a society can figure things out, then it's about implementation and execution. And I can tell you the other hard part about stronger memory right now, it's hard to give something away for free. People aren't, aren't always jumping at it, even though we think they should. And there's a consistency requirement for folks to, to start to use it. I think it's having tools that can be accessible to everyone. And then if we're all agreeing that this is really helpful for the world, then Let's find other things that are helpful for, for the world too and, and roll them out. Let's have the discussion because we're all getting older and we need to have better ways to uh, support those who don't have means. Uh, and I think this is one of those critical ways to do it. Great. So to wrap things up, Rob, I've spoken to a couple of your teammates. I've spoken to Vivian Coda and I've talked to Jessica Fredrickson about what you are doing with Stronger Memory. And I know that you have started and you've alluded to it already in this interview that you're doing some, you're implementing it in Goodwin House. Can you tell me where you are in terms of the rollout, but also how far along you are with the program? Are you 100% done in what stronger memory looks like? 10 years from now, is it going to look the same? Do you think we're 70% of the way there to the product, what it's going to look like? That's a great question, especially coming from this group of facilitators that are national such a smart group of folks that, I, that we just talked with Jessica Fredrickson, as you referenced, who's our brain health program manager, a position funded by our Goodwin House Foundation. And so we were just on that call and they had a lot of different recommendations for how to make the program better. I certainly don't think what we were seeing today is going to be our, our version 10 years from now. I think the essence of what we're doing today certainly will be uh, in play. And I think for what we are figuring out, at Goodwin House, serving 950 residents, and is to do that and create an ecosystem again. So sort of same philosophy, same lessons learned from my experience back in Seattle with Ages on Madison, Ages Living. I want to be able to create an ecosystem here at Goodwin House where no matter where you come into us, you can benefit from this type of brain health uh, approach. And so now our private duty home care givers that are aligned with our residents providing a very important care for two hours, four hours, 24 hours a day. I want those individuals, our caregivers, to be able to have this curriculum to use with our clientele, with our residents, so that they can benefit and not just with you know, having someone in service to them, but having someone in service to them with the power and tool of a potential curriculum that could really benefit their brain health. 
So we've rolled that out. We're just at the start of that, but seeing several weeks in now and seeing really good feedback from that. Uh, we're rolling it out in our assisted living uh, settings, in our memory care settings, and again, through our care uh, providers. And so now our residents are able to engage in a way that they weren't uh, before. And offering up to all of our independent living residents, we're mostly an independent living resident shop, if you will, and allowing them to utilize this program as much as possible. So that's what's happening here. We also have a, a fairly unique program called Goodwin House at Home. It's a continuing care model for folks that want to stay in their home and don't want to move out. Uh, about 60 of our members showed interest in this program initially. And we captured about 20 of those folks to go through the entire program. And it's in that group, uh, members of that group have been going on for over a year now uh, utilizing this program. So we've seen it work in, a, in the you know, community settings, the direct care community settings, but we've also seen it work with people that are disparate and coming together virtually. And so our next iterations, which is really exciting, our next iterations are to offer up a pathway for other people throughout the country to have a daily check-in. So we don't expect people to use it daily, but we, we hope people will come in at least check in once a week and check in with a volunteer that is knowledgeable about stronger memory and encourage them along the way because the hardest part of the program is to do the program consistently. I like anything. If we get on an exercise regimen, it's only gonna be so good if I'm actually doing the exercise. And so we need to encourage people to do it. That's our next chapter. Our next chapter is tying together with a wonderful organization called Brain Exercise Initiative, which was started by a wonderful lady, a scene out of UCLA. She's now just heading into medical school. She's a college student who has over a thousand different volunteers throughout the country and actually a number of places in the world that are taking the same essence of what we've talked about, Peter, reading out loud, handwriting, basic math, and distributing it out, uh, allowing for uh, students to be the facilitators in uh, a number of communities throughout the country. So uh, they've agreed to support us with volunteers you know, multiple times a week, up to five times a week, to have people to be able to check in on a national level. So you don't have to live in a community to be benefit from this. You don't have to necessarily be a member of a village program, although those are great programs, and we certainly would encourage that. We're trying to make this as accessible to everybody so that anyone can start the process and continue. My mom's been at it for nine years, super consistent, and it's really benefited for her. How's she doing today? She would tell you she's stronger today, Peter, than she has been in a, in a long time. And the reason why she would say that, and she said this the other day, is because she's using the Stronger Memory curriculum in combination with the socialization. So she's upped her game. In the first seven years, she wasn't doing a few things. Today, she is meeting weekly with a group of peers. That's through the Stronger Memory program. And that's really getting her excited. Like that gets her jazzed up to come back uh, again and keep it going and, and talk about new ideas. The other thing that she's doing that she wasn't doing before is, and I think it's a brilliant path for socialization, is that she is calling a friend every morning now. And she's reading with that friend a book. And they're reading the same book out loud to each other. And so now she's got this social connectivity that is different. And she loves it. She loves the book she's reading. She loves the friend she's reading it with. And she's super, super strong in her cognitive abilities. She's mm. teaching bridge. This is a woman who literally was on a path of not being able to know who her grandchildren were going to be, not to be probably introduced to a number of her grandchildren. Uh, she's got to know all of them, all seven. And so I think we're really great in terms of her cognitive ability. 
I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but this story is particularly important to me. I love all of my interviews. I do. I really do. Otherwise, I wouldn't go into them. Uh, But I was giddy before I went into this. As you know, I had six grandparents who raised me and three had dementia and Alzheimer's. And my family and my father and, you know, the supporting cast, we just felt helpless back when it started to hit us in the late 90s through the early 2000s. And I wish that I would have had stronger memory today. Makes me optimistic. I'm a glass half full type of guy. So I'm happy it's here today and thankful for the work that you're doing. My last question before we wrap up is related to research. I know that you have a partner who is helping to some degree with research, and I believe it's George Mason University. What is their role? Why have you asked them to come in? Why did they want to join you? George Mason University has some wonderful leadership and researching programs that are non-pharmacological and that can impact positively the older adult population. And so when we talked with them about stronger memory, we said, look, we we did pre and post testing in our pilot study. We have a cohort and a group of over 100 individuals within Goodwin House who utilized the program. Would you be interested? They said, absolutely. You know, we'd love to take a look at this, see what we can glean from your previous research and then add additional research to it. And that's exactly what they've done. They, they reviewed the initial research that we had done, wrote a report about that, just talking about the, the excitement around having such a strong brain health program that's non-pharmacological. And also it has a, you know, a, a really positive impact on the socialization side. And especially during this pandemic, I think finding things that have an uplift for socialization is critical. And so they came out with the initial report, which was really positive. And then they're doing ongoing research with it right now. This is not an area that I'm an expert in. I I don't know about the research side. I haven't been tremendously interested in it because I just want to get the answers out. But I also recognize again and again, when we have conversations with people, even though it's free, uh, even though there's no side effects, people will say, well, you know, tell me about the research behind it. Well, it's based on 25 years of success in Japan. That's great. You know, there's NIH studies about this and that parts of it that all make sense and, and have proofed it out. That's great. What about this specific curriculum? And so they're helping us really understand the power of the stronger memory curriculum. And not only are they helping us, but so is this national network of, through the Village to Village network of folks. So we have about 80 to 100 participants that are now in a research study on the stronger memory program. We'll hopefully see some good results and, and continue to build on those programs because I'm sure people would like double blind studies. And I don't even know what they were called, but I'm sure more people would like more research to be able to do a free program that has no side effects other than a a positive potential. But a lot of good work with George Mason University. And they're going to be, they just were selected to present uh, on the Stronger Memory Program at the upcoming Gerontological Society of America event that's happening in in November. So Hmm. excited for them. That is exciting. Jessica shared that with me on the call. Rob, I've really, really loved having you on here. This topic is fascinating to me, and I'm glad that you're getting the word out there. Is there anything I haven't asked you today or something that you would like to highlight before we wrap up? I think folks uh, will realize fairly quick that this is a simple program. There's not a lot of sophistication to it and uh, not to let people be dissuaded by it. This is about bringing back the basics, arithmetic, you know, things that people learned when they were five, six, and seven, that the brain really secured strongly. And we would ask people to give it a chance. It's not a miracle cure uh, for a disease that has no cure. What it seems to be is a positive response to symptoms that after about a month, people seem to be able to focus better. People seem to be able to have better recall. 
some people would say that they, they've seen no change at all. We'd say, great, that's a win, right? Because you're looking to, to arrest cognitive decline. So give it a chance and then spread the word. And we are uh, grateful for you getting the word out, Peter, through this forum and podcast and anything else uh, we can do to help people. We're happy to try. Well, Rabbi, I'll be sure to share in the show notes links for them to find information, download the same packets, the exercises that's all available for free. You can purchase a book as well. My father purchased the book today. So if you want something, one-stop shopping quickly and get it to your front door, you don't have to track down a printer. You've made it easy for absolutely anybody to start something very simple. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Some of the listeners are going to want to find you online. Where can they reach out to you if they have some questions, follow-up, or advice? And thanks to your dad for purchasing. You know, we've tried to make the book at cost. So there's no money making in this for us. It's really just trying to get the word out. So hopefully you'll enjoy using that. And for anyone who has uh, conversations that they want to continue with us, a stronger memory at goodwinhouse.org uh, would be the best way. So uh, that email gets to me directly, but also to Jessica Fredrickson, who's our brain health program manager. So stronger memory at goodwinhouse.org. Thanks, Rob, for joining the program. I look forward to connecting with you in the future. And you truly are an asset in long-term care. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Peter. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by experience.care the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.